Encouragement. Encouragement is a good thing. It's uh, something, that's where we're at, at uh, Living as a Church Class 10. Encouragement. Last week it was Class 9. It was Discipline. And this is actually kind of like Part 2 of last week's. Last week was about confronting someone in sin and then dealing with discipline in a church, dealing with uh, unrepentant people. How do we go about that? What's a difficult situation? What's a situation you know where it is difficult no matter what if you approach somebody in sin, but hopefully with the goal of restoration? And this is kind of the same way in, in, a, in a way. This is about safeguarding unity in holiness. So encouragement. As Christians, we know that it, it's what we are called to do, and it's something that can be vague when we just say, be encouragers. Is encouragement just another word for being nice? You know, As we open, I want to ask you this question. What are some of the goals of true encouragement according to Scripture, and why should we encourage one another? What are the goals of encouragement in Scripture? Yeah, helps each one of us persevere Yeah, and grow. Exactly. It's, yeah, we're commanded to. That's right. That's right. Um, look, look at the first verse right there from Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Him, as in Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So we are called to the same uh, goal, every one of us. Like you said, sanctification. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so we, um, and then I want to echo our uh, church covenant too. We have it written in there explicitly. It says, We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes members of the church, Exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. So here's, I think, a good definition of encouragement. is caring for someone else, usually including speaking biblical truth to them, with the goal of that person's growth and godliness. Now, you notice the word I say usually. It's because sometimes encouragement isn't just words of encouragement, even though that's what we primarily think of when we say you need to be encouraging someone, it's encouraging words. But you could also like bring them a meal or do something like that. Um, or do something like that. So our goal, uh, like Alexa said, our goal is to help one another grow in holiness. You know, each one of us today, uh, you know, we all struggle. We all are in this journey together. I like to say that you know the Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. And each one of us are in a life and death struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we are called to help one another cross the finish line. I mean, that's, we're, we're not alone. We're not an island. We're working together. And that's what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And that's one of the wonderful blessings of being a part of the body of Christ is you're not alone. And uh, you're not trying to do it on your own. Part of that, like I said, last week we talked about part of that means... Uh, confronting explicit sin. Sometimes it's super egregious, like we talked about a murderer who might get immediately put out of the church um, as quick as possible. To uh, like, you know, we talked about like to save uh, face. You know what I mean? To to make sure the reputation of Jesus isn't soiled any further. Sometimes it's somebody who's going down the path of sin, and we gotta gently correct them. Um, maybe we correct them with one person or two people. You know, you know we want to make sure that we are growing in unity together and encouraging one another. Encouragement is crucial for our unity as a church. And um, 
you know, when, we, when our unity is suffering, we need to be well-skilled in the art of management so that we can help grow together. And so uh, let me point out this uh, brief outline for our time together. First of all, we're going to start by examining what makes encouragement difficult, and then we're going to look at the types of relationship that are required to make encouragement happen, and finally some practical guidance on how we can speak uh, encouragement to one another and to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So Roman numeral 2 on the second page, if you open it up, the challenge of encouragement. So first, what makes this difficult? Well, two things make this really difficult. First and foremost, our struggle is one of the heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? And then we know that the the evil desires of the heart are what James calls uh, the cause of temptation and it's the cause of conflict is our evil desires of our heart. And so uh, when we don't, when we find that our brothers and sisters in this church are making decisions that don't align with their identity, we know that the primary problem is not behavior, but it's a heart issue. And this is important because oftentimes we want people's behavior to change. And I think that's a good ultimate goal. I especially think of kids, you know, but also adults, you know, we might say, well, you know, if only he wouldn't spend so much time around those people, or if only she would, would spend her money differently, or if only he would switch um, jobs, that, you know, or something like that. We always think it's about changing their behavior. We know that that's, that's what we immediately think needs to happen, but ultimately, behavior is not the root of the problem. So a few implications that come from that is, first of all, we need to pray for heart change. Only God can change someone's heart. And... We need to understand and remember that prayer is our best tool for doing that. I mean, we, we can really understand that a, a behavior is not going to change until a heart change, and only God is the one who can do the, the heart change. And so ultimately, when we start to address issues of encouragement, we got to keep in mind that, number one, it's a heart issue. Number two, our hearts, um, when we uh, encourage others, we must remember that our hearts are prone to wonder as well. You know, Paul exhorts those who, uh, to confront those who are caught in sin, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. And then he, right after he says that, he said, and guard your own hearts as well. Because we know that our hearts are just as evil as other people's hearts, right? So it's a, it's a difficult thing whenever you think, well, you know, like Jesus said, you're going to approach somebody to take the, the speck out of their eye, make sure you take the plank out of your own eye as well, because we know that we are prone to sin, sometimes even the same sin that we see in our brothers and sisters, which is why we see that sin in their life, because we struggle with that as well, you know? So always bathe everything in prayer, always approach graciously, and remember that the goal is not somebody to feel happy or fulfilled. The goal is their sanctification. Their goal is for them to be transformed into the image of Christ. And ultimately, that's, that's the most, you know, that, that's really what we want to see happen. Yeah, comment, question? Dan, the scripture in Galatians, Yeah, that, yep. I completely agree. I think you're right. And um, we'll get into the how in a second, too. But you definitely, that's, that's important to remember. Um, number two is hollow, one of the challenges, the second challenge is hollow and deceptive philosophy. And that's what I mean by, you know, worldly thinking. We're all, we're all philosophers at one, you know, in some way you could look at it. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, 
according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So um, we're all the time thinking, creating philosophies of meaning in our lives, thinking like, what matters? Why, why do things happen? What's, what's uh, worth living for? And um, we're all, you know, as Christians, we want our guiding philosophy to be the gospel, the truth of the gospel. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we, we, we it might look like we have that in our life, but we um, don't always live in that truth. Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp have a book called How People Change. And in this book, they outline seven different ways that people um, do things called, like, fill that what they call the gospel gap, a gap between what we know is true in the gospel and how we live. So they might look like uh, excellent ways of living, but in reality, they're not, you know. Um, we, we tend to mix gospel truth with other philosophies that sound biblical, but on the surface, but when you dig down deep, you know that they're not. They're not. So I want to go through a couple, uh, seven of these, what we put in place to fill gospel gaps. The first is formalism. This means you tell yourself, well, I participate in, in regular meetings and ministries of the church, so I feel like my life is under control. I may always be in the church, but it has little impact on my heart and how I live my life. And so I may become judgmental and patient with those who don't go through the same motions that I do. In other words, this person thinks that Christianity is being in the right place and going through the right motions. That's formalism. Secondly, is similar to that, and that is legalism, where I live by rules, rules I create for myself, rules I create for others. And I feel it's okay if I keep my own rules. And then I become arrogant and bitter if others can't meet the same standards that I set for them. There's no joy in my life because there's no grace to celebrate. Number three is emotionalism or mysticism. This is the incessant pursuit of an emotional experience with God, where I feel close to God. I live for the moments when I feel close to Him, and if there's no emotional high, I assume that God doesn't love me or that He's not real. Number four is activism. It's, this is when I get excited about Christianity, mainly as a way to fix this broken world, and I base my relationship with God on how much I've done to alleviate poverty, but my own heart is really far from Him because it's about activism. Number five is biblicism. This is reducing the gospel just to a mastery and understanding of biblical knowledge and theology. I know my Bible inside and out, but I don't let it master me. And so I get impatient with those who have lesser knowledge. We see this in, um, uh, like somebody wrote a book recently, How to Stay Christian in Seminary. Because a lot of people will go to seminary or Bible college and they end up, and I've seen it um, just in my own life too with talking to people that they go to Bible college and they end up leaving the faith because they, they think it's about just knowing things in the Bible and it's not about that. Number six is the, the therapeutic gospel. I may talk a lot about how Christ is the only way that healing and help can come to those who are hurting yet without realizing it I've made Christ more of a therapist than as a savior and I view the sin of people against each other as a greater problem than my own sin Against God, and I treat Christianity as a way to live a happy, free, uh, happy life, you know, free of problems. And then finally, what you might call socialism the deep fellowship and friendship I find at church can be my be its own idol. It could be this is what I want is just uh, replacing Christ with the body of Christ. 
And the gospel is just a way of networking Christian friendships. You know, that could be a replacement as well for the gospel truth. So these are seven anti-gospel philosophies, all of them based on half-truths that we're prone to believe, which is why exactly why we need encouragement, because encouragement serves to correct faulty philosophies about Christianity. It's kind of like how um, you can, it can appear to be right, but the underlying, uh, the underlying causalities can cause problems. Think of somebody who's learning to play the piano. Tom, you play the piano, right? You know, you learn to play the piano, you can get lazy and your hands can fold down, right? And then um, you might still be playing the right notes, but your posture is wrong and it's going to cause problems. You're not going to be able to advance, right? Because you might be hitting the right notes, but you need a coach, right? A teacher, a a tutor, a piano teacher to say, set it straight, put your hands the right way, right? You need to have correct form so that you can play longer and then you can play the right notes in the right order that you need to play, and this is what encouragement does. It's kind of saying, hey, I know you, it might look okay, but your behavior, it's not just about hitting the right notes, okay, but I want you to have the right posture so that you can be stronger, correct? As Paul says, um, you know, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So like a teacher, you know, um, of one another, we must expose false ways of thinking thinkings and help other people delight in the truth so that's the challenge is to battle the desires of the heart recognizing that we swim in a sea of worldly philosophies and um, we need to be able to um, that's what we're up against Mm -hmm. and you by doing so you could be the answer to prayer in somebody's life I, I was listening to a guy who said like he was a pastor and for some reason he was just really, really discouraged. And he said he just like asked God, if you could just like give me some word of encouragement today, um, that would be really helpful. And then he said in the afternoon, a random dude he hadn't talked to for months, another pastor in a different part of the country just texted him out of the blue and be like, hey, dude, just thinking about you today. And he just couldn't believe it. He's like, I can't believe it. He's like, I'm a pastor, but I got to say, I can't believe God answered my prayer. <laughs> He's like, I can't believe it. It really happened. I just asked God, could you just send, like, give me a, like, have somebody text me or something, you know, or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, this is where we, we look at Christ as more of our therapist than our savior, where, um, you know, people, where we view the sin of people against each other as a greater problem than our sin against God. And Christianity is, the therapeutic gospel is just thinking that uh, this is, the way to have a happy, happy life, happy, carefree, problem-free life, you know? And I think that's where we pull blinders on our own eyes to think that that's what God wants, you know? That's why I always say almost as a, probably a counter uh, um, statement is like, it's not, it's not about, you know, what did Jesus promise us is that we're going to have troubles in this life. <laughs> you know, we're never promised a walk in the park. We're promised troubles. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said. Um, he never said, in this world you will be trouble-free. He said just the opposite, right? Now let's move to the context for change, Roman numeral three. The context for change is by what, this is, I mean the kinds of relationships that promote encouragement toward holiness. Kind of what we just talked about. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So there are two things that we need in a church to have a healthy culture of encouragement. One is a willingness to reveal struggles. Number two, 
a willingness to listen and help others when they reveal struggles. And so nothing that any of us can say in this class is going to be of any use to anybody else unless you're willing to be honest, unless you're willing to reveal struggles to others, and if you're not close enough to others to know when and how they need help. So uh, a few thoughts on what we can do to cultivate this type of culture in our church is um, sharing your struggles, you know. Like I said, you're not meant to be lived alone. And guess what? You're probably not going through anything that somebody else hasn't already struggled with. You know, that I, there's a, my theology professor in college used to say that which is most universal is also most personal, personable. So that thing that you think that nobody else would understand or struggling with, there, there's probably other people struggling with it as well. And um, one of the best things that we can do and the kindest things that we can do for those who are struggling or, and considering joining our church is making it clear that the church is full of people just like them, full of people who are struggling. We're all struggling. And um, when somebody bears their soul with you, we are called to take them seriously. One of the things that we need to do is not just to be like um, making it sound like it's, it's not that big of a deal and that they shouldn't be struggling with it. You know, um, like somebody might share with you they're struggling with depression. We don't just say, oh, you know, read your Bible more and spend some time in the sun. Then you'll feel okay. So, like, you know, what you might be thinking is what might seem um, simple to you might be somebody's, like, really lifelong struggle with, some, with somebody else. And so when somebody offers to you something that they're struggling with, understand what you've just been given is a jewel, and it may be rough and disfigured, but now you get to have the ministry of encouragement. And you get the stewardship of listening to them and helping to polish that jewel so that it becomes a reflection of God's sanctifying work in their life. So understand that, um, you know, it, it is important. One is that don't discount when somebody shares something with you. Don't blow it off. Don't think it's not important. If they've been open and honest with you enough to share something personable with you, don't discount it. Listen. Take some time there. And uh, beware of uh, cliched responses, number, number two right there. Beware of just saying, well, like, you know, just a little verse and just be like, oh, you know, pray to the Lord always. Be joyful in all circumstances. I'm glad I could help you out. You know what I mean? But listen, you know. Try to, to, to relate and have... Don't discount that. And understand, um, are you perfect? No, right? When somebody, when I come to you, you know I'm not perfect either. And I'm going to struggle with sin my whole life. So, like, don't ever think you've arrived, right? And think, oh, yeah, I don't have any more sins in my life. You know, I know of, speaking of theology professors, of another one who thought that they had not sinned in like 10 years, that there are places, people that think you can get to a point of not sinning at all. Yeah. But like, I know that's not true. You know, we, we're always going to struggle our whole lives. So we need each other, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes personal relationships are even more important than what the person has gone through. You know what I mean? Like I, I've talked to people before who... Um, they're struggling with something. And I'm like, oh, I have a friend who also has, like, you know, had dealt with that and now no longer deals with that. Um, would you like to talk to him? And usually when people do that, they're like, okay, but they don't really. Nobody ever, I feel like nobody ever calls that person. Nobody calls out of the blue. And it's like because 
they want that relationship first of all and like it doesn't you know what i'm saying i don't know that's like that's just happened in my life a lot where i'm like oh you have you had um you have a gambling addiction i have a friend who had a gambling addiction too now he no longer struggles with that so like you want to talk to him and that person who's struggling is like always like oh okay and then i go to that person I'm like well, you know you came through this would you help this person and they're kind of like oh okay but they never connect you know what i mean because they don't know each other and there is helpfulness in that but when you know somebody in the context is like you know you don't have to have a struggle with the same addiction that i did for you to help me right you need to listen to what i'm saying and you need to speak the gospel truth and you need to recognize where there's gospel gaps and you need to like really help me in more real ways that's what i think anyway not to, yeah um that's really good i i think like the context for this is is super important so how, Roman numeral four, how to encourage struggling people. We know that we need to do this. We know that we are in the body of Christ for this purpose. We have pledged with one another in our church covenant to admonish one another and encourage one another. We have said we're going to do this together. We're on the same mission. We're on the same journey. We're all imperfect, but we've all been changed by God's grace. And we all have new life in Christ. And so um, how do we do this? How do we... Um, instructs one another well the answer like uh, mike said it depends on the person right it depends on the person and how well you know that person but scripture has given us great wisdom first thessalonians five fourteen says and we urge you brothers admonish the idle help the weak be patient with them all and so when we encounter the struggle of a brother or sister in christ it's useful to think of these three things that Paul gives to the church in Thessalonica. Are they idle or unruly, as the New American Standard Bible says? Are they faint-hearted in need of motivation? Are they simply weak and in need of someone to help shoulder the burden? How can we all do this with all kinds of patience? And so whatever category they're in, let me suggest three ways that we should do this. First of all, speak scripture to them. And this is not just a uh, tri-automatic response like where we look it up in the uh, concordance of our Bible and find anger and then turn to anger and says, don't be angry. You know what I mean? It's not that like, um, oh, don't return to that sin. It's like a dog returning to its vomit. You know what I mean? You can easily find a verse, but like really think about this, the truth of the scripture. Show love to them. Understand that sometimes it's um, when we talk about the truth of Scripture, it does include single verses, but sometimes it's about patterns. It's about patterns of salvation history. Like, for example, looking at the pattern of how God has been faithful. That's what we're going to see actually today in the sermon. The sermon is a great example of this because in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11, he talks about the pattern of example from Abraham and how. Um, it's an encouragement to us to see how God dealt with Abraham. And I'm going to give you a great example of this in Scripture, I mean, in the, in the sermon today. So, first of all, speak Scripture to them. Secondly, help them meditate on the good news. Speak to them about different aspects of what Christ has done. Hello. Uh, there's handouts right here if you want to grab one. Speak to them about what Christ has done and get specific. For the person wrestling with guilt and shame, Christ has shouldered our blame so that we can enjoy reconciliation with the Father. So for someone experiencing loneliness, Christ has brought us adoption into God's family. For the person fighting constant temptation and indwelling sin, remember Christ has gave us the Holy Spirit living in us. And so um, there's a lot of scriptural truth that really relates to all of our life.
And then thirdly, um, help them to identify evidences of God's grace in their life. Recognizing what the Holy Spirit has done and is doing in their life. If someone uh, begins to doubt, I mean, I mean, even if you have strong words, an encouragement. Again, uh, another perfect example of this is we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 6 in the, in the sermon today where uh, this is uh, like the introduction to my sermon. I'm going to remind us like Paul, I mean not Paul, whoever wrote Hebrews had just come off of like a long warning passage where he's being very strong. And then he says, but that, that's not you. And then he gives like two really strong encouragements which is today, the sermon is really an encouraging sermon after two sermons of like getting hammered, right? Well, Paul does the same thing to the Corinthian church. He has a lot of rebuke to say to them, but he begins in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 by saying, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. And so he's getting ready, like I said last week in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he's getting ready to address some serious sin in this church that needs to be dealt with. But he begins with an encouragement. He begins by saying, I always thank God for you because of the grace that God has given you in Christ Jesus and that you are being enriched in your speech and in your knowledge. So like you are, you are on this journey, okay? You are going, I got some tough things to say, but... Man, look at the evidences of God's grace already in your life. And what is it? I was going to say this, like, um, I was thinking about this uh, for the sermon. How many, do they say if you give a negative uh, to somebody, you need to give like five positives or something like that? Has anybody ever heard the sociological studies about that? Like, if you've got something to say, you got it like, or like positive, negative, and positive, you know what I mean? You don't just come down on somebody. Do you know the stats? I don't know. It's something like that, right? In other words, be more encouraging, even if you have something difficult to say to somebody. And Paul gives us that great, exa- great example in there. So I want to end in the last 10, 15 minutes we have here is, at the very back, three case studies uh, of, of a hypothetical situation. We'll start out with the uh, number one, or A, Number A, <laughs> admonish the idol. I do that every week, don't I? I say number A. Admonish the idol. Let's say to begin with, you're talking with, um, we'll call her Sue. And she will not remove herself from the path of temptation. She's found that she's very tempted to be in love with the things of this world. And watching a particular show on TV seems to always leave her discontent with the life that God has given to her. But she really, really likes it and has fun talking with her friends at work the next morning after the show airs. And you talk with her about this show and how it may be leading a difficult, I mean, a destructive role in her life. And that then she might realize, and she confesses, that the show does regularly lead her to being discontent, to sinful discontent, but she hasn't stopped watching it. And she seems idle and apathetic uh, about this. So... First of all, two questions. First of all, where is the gap in Sue's understanding of the gospel? Two. So she needs to understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And um, like repentance, right? It's not just saying, oh, yeah, you know, this show's leading me to sin. And then continue in it, right? Uh, she's missing the fact that... Um, she doesn't need to continue on in that sin, right? Because she's dead to sin. Or, she's feeding her flesh. Yeah, she's feeding her flesh. Exactly. Like, 
why you keep feeding that, right? Because you know, you agree that it's sinning, but yet, like you said, you're not cutting that part out, right? You agree that it's sin, but you're not cutting that part out of your, of your life. You're just going back to it, right? So, um, or like what Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, right? If you know that this show, you even agree later on, like, oh, yeah, it's bad, but it's just, you're going back to it, going back to it. So what would you say to her? What scriptures would you apply? We already talked about some of them. Are there any other ones? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, those are all good ones. Uh, how about verses about, I um, mean, like, um, she's looking for um, joy, right, in the show, and then and she's getting it the day after, but yet it's not making lasting joy in her life. So really g- going back to joy, right? The joy of the Lord is your strength, and, you know, there's a lot of verses about what really is, is helpful. Um, and this happened to me. Oh, go ahead. Bad, bad company uh, corrupts with Yeah, and um, I think that's, there's funny, like, uh, we see this a lot. I mean, like, it's funny, you might say, uh, oh, this TV show is bad because it might have, like, nudity or something in it, but when you think about it, it's like, well, it's the fake, the fake world. You know, just watching the fake world can start to lead discontentment, you know what I mean? It's not just sexual sins, but it could also be, like, desire sins in other ways. And it's funny how um, things like that, yeah, well, with Sue, the, the, the case study was with Sue. It's like she knew it, what, that it was sin, and, um, but she had no desire to turn from it. So there was a lack in, in that. What, what's that? Yeah. Yep. Um, B, encourage the faint-hearted. So um, we just talked about an example of warning those who are idle. And letter B, what it means to encourage the faint-hearted. For this example, let's think of a guy named Joe. He's in his late 20s, still trying to figure out what to do with his life. Uh, He doesn't like his job. He doesn't find himself particularly useful at church. He would like to get married, maybe, and not anywhere close to it. And he's been struggling for several years with what God's purpose are for his life. He feels like giving up, but he just doesn't know what that even looks like. He rarely serves others, but says he would like to. And he just doesn't think that he has anything to contribute and uh, that everybody else uh, like is, is super Christians to him and nobody really knows him or cares. So where is the gap in Joe's understanding of the gospel? And maybe, I mean, you could look at the seven things that we talked about, the gospel, but where's, where's Joe's uh, gap in understanding the gospel? Yeah. Well, it's not just the church. He's dissatisfied uh, with, with his job. He's dissatisfied with his uh, uh, social, like his relationship status. He's dissatisfied, yeah, with everything, including his, like, he just, he's not serving. He's not doing anything, basically. Uh, Phil? Um, yeah, so the first gap that you're saying, the gap is his, understand, his thinking is what's going to make him truly fulfilled, right? Okay. But, I mean, think about it, though. Um, what did you say? There's a scripture. I think it's Matthew. Um, yep. So he could have fallen into um, legalism or formalism, like I said, no one number one, number two. Like, he thought, well, I'm going to church, so I should be okay. But then he, his... Uh, his, his identity is, he still thinks like, 
well, maybe if I got married or maybe if I had a different job. And like you were saying, uh, Phil or Jane, that you were saying, well, that's not going to cut it. You know, somebody needs to come alongside him and say, look, you're always like, you have this goal way out there, right? But you're not even, one, you're not even trying to reach that goal very well. Um, uh, number two, that's not, even if you attain it, it's not gonna, you're not going to be happy. And number three, like, um, like you, you uh, so what you, would you say to him? Like, remind him where his treasure is, right? Remind him where his, his true identity is. Um, Tom? Um, and uh, to add to that, thinking like, well, I, you know, I'm nobody, so I can't serve in the church, yeah. right? Um, might as well not do anything because I'm not, I haven't been a Christian a long time or I have these problems, you know, so I'm, I'm just not going to do anything. Well, we know, you know, like, no matter what, everybody can, can take part in the body of Christ. Um, and then every Christian, every, if you're a Christian and if you're a, a member of the church, like if you are a believer, you have a spiritual gift, right? Everybody. So don't discount and just say, you know, it sounds like this is, um, this guy actually reminds me of case A as well. Like he's kind of idle as well. But um, he's kind of disheartened, you know, so he needs that encouragement. And I think this is, both of these cases, all three of these cases are really good examples that we will see in the church. And that's why it comes right from the scripture here. Because the last one is to help the weak. Who is weak? Well, in one sense, we're all weak, right? We all have, uh, we're not perfect. We all have deficiencies, you know. But, um, but the, the case study that we have here is to um, a guy named Max. Max has been diagnosed with clinical depression. He's unable to do the amount of good that he once could. And he struggles in his relationship with God. Now that many of the emotions of faith he once counted on without ever realizing it are few and far between. Through work with his pastor, he has come to recognize some of the spiritual roots of the problem. But his mind is more susceptible to that downward spiral of depression. And there is a physical side of his condition that is hard to escape. In this situation, though not always necessary, it's his doctor is helping him on the physical side of things with medication. Yet Max is discouraged and downhearted in so many ways. Max is weak. So first question, what might be some possible gaps in Max's understanding of the gospel? Yeah, uh, I think you're right. Um, he was basing, and a lot of us do this, right? Or some of us do this, that we base things on emotion. Sometimes God gives us emotion. Sometimes we cry. Sometimes we don't. Some of us are more emotional than other people. And your faith is not based on your emotions, right? So what kind of scriptures are very helpful? Anybody have any idea? That's a handout right beside you, right there. What kind, and we're at the very back page. And we're just wrapping up here. And, re, and then remember, like, again, like I said, like, our faith is not based on our emotions. Um, not that we won't have emotions, but it's not like, it's not our feelings that determines God's love for us and his sovereignty over us, right? Um, yeah. And then finally, um, what does Paul say? Um, Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. And let, let's, like, let's, love, let's let patience be the marker of our relationships with one another, and grace be the marker, and love be the marker of our relationships with one another. Uh, that's what we want to, to see in each other. So, um, and again, hopefully we will all continue to grow into maturity in, in Christ.